Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Welcome everybody. My name is Carmen Hoffman. I am Secretary General of the European Association for Banking and Financial History, EABH in short, and you are listening to the EABH podcast, Finance and History. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with Thomas Mayer, one of the leading German economists of our time. He worked for the International Monetary Fund in the 90s, was chief economist of Deutsche Bank until 2012, and is now director at the Flossbach von Stork Research Center. He writes widely about money, inflation, and society. Just published Das Inflationsgespenst, eine Weltgeschichte von Geld und Wert, a ghost called Inflation, a world history of money and value, which deals with, in his own words, a scandalous idea of saving the European Union through the creation of currency competition, and how this idea can be based in history. Welcome, Thomas. It's nice to be back, Carmen. Great. So why do you think historical perspectives on money and finance matter? Yeah, when I was asked by the publisher to write a book about inflation, and I have to commend the publisher because uh, they asked about a year ago, I thought I can't just write about inflation in uh, the way that as an analyst, I have often done so um, when I was working in the investment banking industry, so quick and to the present situation related, I have to go a bit deeper. When I did that, I found that it is necessary to understand money, what money is before you talk about inflation. Over the years, I have spent quite some time on this question. When I was at, uh, at university many, many years ago, I was simply uh, given a one sentence explanation of what money is. The textbooks usually started by saying money is a means of exchange, a store of value and unit of account. That's it. And then one went on and did all the nice calculations and analysis with money. But that sentence kind of was never really questioned. However, when you go back and ask yourself, what is money? You will find that this is a very complex social instrument. Um, yes, indeed, it uh, serves and served as a means of transaction, a store of value and unit of account. But it is also a measure of debt. And this is something that I believe we are not really appreciating in full. In history, you can see two strands of the development of money. One strand is money as a measure of debt. And this comes out of the well, family relation. In, in family, when we exchange things, we don't do it by paying coins. We give and take. When we do it with friends, maybe we have a mental account of what we gave and what we have received. When you do it in a tribal society, the accounting becomes perhaps a little bit more concrete. You think more concretely of what you have given and what you have taken. And when you develop the tribe into the organized society along the strand of development, then you can end up with a big ledger of uh, credits and debts. So that's one strand of development. But how do you deal with people that do not belong to your tribe, that do not belong to your society? Well, in that case, obviously, the system of, of credit and debt doesn't work. There, you need another form of money, uh, usually a commodity 
that is convenient to handle, which you can use as a means of exchange. You of course know that uh, exchanges are difficult. If you uh, want to uh, find somebody to trade with you, you have a certain good to offer. You seek another good that you want to trade in against your good. Hard to find somebody who exactly matches your preferences and whose preferences matches basically what you have to offer. So therefore, you use a means of exchange. And over time, a means of exchange has taken on many forms. You know, it was uh, some societies cattle, in other societies, uh, it was uh, stones or whatever. Um, in our cultural region, it was often precious metals, silver, gold. This uh, evolution of money along these two lines of evolution is something that I feel economists often do not think enough about because it has of course, important implications. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more because when I started reading your book, um, I thought as well, you mentioned there David Graeber and the great anthropologist who wrote about the history of depth, the first 5,000 mm -hmm. years, I think. And when I was um, first starting to get to know his work, I as well thought it was a fundamental shift in thinking about money because he does not deny that it is a, a unit of accounting. And, and this is an important function, but it has much more to it, how yeah. it is like basically underlying all of our actions as a society. So, and I was thinking, I grew up in very rural um, German countryside and you had this idea of, of the ledger. And it's really true here until today, it is really true that like as a family, you have very big ledger. So you have people you owe to and you have people you gave a lot of favors to. And then maybe even a generation later, you can call them in. So this idea that money is something on this part of the account where you own something, but it is as well a debt we all have. This is something should be much more taken into account because it adds so much more complexity to the relations of people, but as well institutions and states, right? Yeah, absolutely. Money is a social instrument. And... Uh... It takes forms according to the needs of society. And it is not a technical thing, um, which many economists think and that I was taught at university. In your book, you mentioned this evolution or these different functions of money. So commodity money, but as well paper money, credit money, fiat credit money and crypto money. We will come a bit later to the details of these. But another important part of your description of the system of money we live in are the institutions that give out money as means of exchange or as debt. Probably the most important institutions um, in our times as well are central banks. And so the first central banks in, in Europe were founded in, in Sweden first and then not so late after the Bank of England. However, this was um, 300 years after the first case of paper money and paper money inflation was reported uh, by Marco Polo from China. Do you want to give us a, a short overview of the evolution of central banks and why it is so important for us today? It's probably a truism to say that money has two characteristics. It is short in supply, but very much in demand. And these two characteristics uh, have come frequently over history in conflict. Take the case of China, where at the turn of the first millennium, clever tradesmen had the idea of facilitating exchange by relieving their customer from carrying around this very heavy iron money. 
uh, to buy um, a pound of salt, you needed to have about a pound of iron money. So that was heavy. So clever traders got the idea of uh, issuing uh, paper notes for money uh, you deposited with them. That was much, much easier. And uh, the Chinese had invented paper before. Um, they were familiar with paper. Uh, the use of paper was also promoted by uh, the need to study for the uh, imperial exams. So uh, textbooks were already there. And then these, these guys had this idea, well, I print a receipt for this iron money and then the customer can use it um, and exchange it. And everyone who uh, takes on this receipt knows that there is iron money in store. But uh, shortly after they uh, had this circulation of these papers, they also realized that the customers left the iron uh, sitting in the store, rarely wanted to take it out in exchange for paper. And then they had this idea that they could perhaps issue a bit more paper than they had on store. So they started creating money and enjoying the so-called seniorage, i.e. the profit by issuing more money than is really backed by real stuff. With that, they got into trouble, as it's always the case. The emperor took over. Um, then it became an imperial paper money. Wonderful also first example that politics uh, then comes in. The um, emperors found it very useful for political purposes to issue more paper notes than they were a real uh, metal money on store. And people soon realized that these paper notes were put out at great volume uh, and the purchasing power went down. We had several rounds of uh, inflationary crisis. And by 1450, the then ruling emperor decided that this was a bad experiment. This echoes a bit an experience that the Romans were already uh, making. Back then, they didn't have paper money in the Chinese fashion. They had coins, silver coins, a denarius, for instance, gold coins. And uh, to fund their expenses, they degraded the precious metal content of these coins over the centuries post-birth of Christ. So money degradation has many historical precedents. It, it took astonishingly long time for the paper money to come over to Europe, even though Marco Polo already wrote about it, uh, whether of first-hand experience or whether he was only related what was told to him is an open question, but he already wrote about it. And only in the 17th century, a clever Swedish um, merchant, Johann Palmstrok, had the idea of relieving uh, the Swedes uh, from the heavy copper coins, which they had been carrying around uh, to do trades. Um, very cumbersome stuff. And he imported the Chinese idea, opened up a bank where people could uh, deposit their copper coins and would receive banknotes. And then a series of developments, which I we don't have the time to go through here, but which can be read in the book in detail. He also ended up issuing more paper notes than customers had deposited uh, copper coins, and he got into serious trouble. So the king of Sweden took over. They put him in jail, once even sentenced him to death because of fraud. Um, but the king soon realized that this is actually not a bad business. So the Palmstruck Bank became the Swedish Riksbank over time, and the money issuance monopoly then rested with the Swedish crown. And they, of course, also engaged eventually in so-called fractional reserve banking, i.e. not paying out the 
metal that was on deposit against the paper notes. The king had it easier than Palmstroch at this time because the king simply declared the banknotes as legal tender so that people had to accept it for the payment of debts. A couple of years later, we're talking in the 17th century, another clever group of uh, merchants came up in London with the idea of helping out uh, the king, William of Orange, who had funding needs to fight a war. His credit rating was pretty dire, as kings often have the bad habit of not repaying debt that they have incurred, and the creditor has little means to force them uh, for repayment. So his credit rating was pretty lousy in the city of London, and uh, a couple of guys had this idea that uh, they actually could raise money for the king in their name, a better name in the city than the king's name, and uh, therefore give him the needed money at a much lower rate than he would have to pay. Apparently, uh, William found this a good proposition and he made a deal. These uh, people wanted in return the privilege of issuing banknotes in the greater London area as a monopoly. So he granted them the privilege and they formed a company called the Governor and the Bank of England. And they could issue banknotes in return of metal money deposits and also benefit from seniorage through fractional reserve banking. At the same time, they, of course, raised the money for the king and gave him the loan, which I understand is still in the books of the Bank of England. So these were the beginnings of the central banks, which also tell us two interesting points. On the one hand, the Swedish central bank was created as a, so to speak, in modern terms, you would say as a lender of last resort to banks when they had liquidity problems as a result of fractional reserve banking. So here you have the one function that was established as a important role for a central bank. And the other one, the Bank of England, also shows you uh, the other function that central banks over history always have resumed, and this is to fund government expenses. Right. It sounds a bit like the analogy that the monetary innovation seemed to be in these historic cases always to get rid of the burden of the heavy coins of copper, iron, and so on. But you said that basically in, in Sweden and England and China, the same developments took place, that there was the creation of more liquidity. But at the same time, what happened in the 17th century was that there was a global gold standard established with England being the global hegemon, the global power. And actually, this global standard that was based in the gold reserves the country had, that lasted for almost 300 years. So it seemed quite stable, right? When we start from the 17th century, which is an important starting point, by the way, because this is uh, really where the big works of the Enlightenment uh, were written, David Hume, John Locke, Adam Smith, and economics. So when we start from there, we can see that commodity money was the basis of money. And on top of that, uh, you had paper money created by commercial banks or central banks, depending on how you uh, would set up the system. I mean, in England, the Bank of England itself, a sort of central bank issued banknotes. In other jurisdictions, it was also the commercial banks who did that business, taking uh, metal coin deposits and issuing banknotes in return. At that point in, in our cultural region, uh, you had uh, several metal as a means of exchange. That was uh, copper for smaller coins, uh, silver, medium value, and gold, top value. So all these circulated. And um, with these coins, you had a 
we had a big problem because obviously they were denominated at a certain value. So you would have an exchange between a certain number of copper coins equal one silver coin. A certain number of silver coins equal a larger denomination, one gold coin. Yeah? And each of these had different names. The problem with that was that um, you had these exchange rates that you set were kind of almost frozen in metal, but the market price of the metals sort of uh, moved uh, sometimes against each other. They were not in the market, they were not fixed. So you had uh, these uh, currencies that at some point, let's say the price of copper was higher than was denominated on the coin or silver or, or gold. Then people engage in arbitrage opportunities. So they bought the coin with uh, the lower denomination, but higher metal value. And that coin kind of disappeared from the market of exchange because they melted it down and got more money out of it. Uh, and, and this was a continuous problem. And in uh, the UK, which uh, in, the, in the wake of the Enlightenment, 17th century, 18th century, uh, was the cradle of industrialization. I think it had a lot, of to, a lot to do with the way the British society uh, saw the market. Uh, that uh, was thanks to the anti-Calvinist movement. A great book, by the way, from Benjamin Friedman, Religion and the Development of Capitalism, that, that showed very, very, very well how in this island there was a, a spirit of market orientation coming up. Perhaps the most known representative is Adam Smith. In the UK, they had uh, the, the silver and they had uh, gold as coins. Now, interestingly, Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, perhaps the most important physicist before Einstein of the world and still one of the key figures in physics um, up to this very date. Isaac Newton had a bit of a midlife crisis. He had done all the great work on physics. Somehow he felt underappreciated and he was looking for new things to do. And uh, he got the offer because he was kind of idle, dissatisfied. And his old friend, uh, the British finance minister said, you look, we need a new guy at the Mint in the Tower of London. So first he be became the clerk of the Mint. And then he rose to the master of the mint. What was the job of the master of the mint? The master of the mint had to ensure that the coins, silver, gold, uh, were produced according to the standards. So they needed to have good standards. After all, there was the stamp of the government on it. And the job of the master of the mint was to ensure that the standard was correct. And in the job offer, he was told, that this was far below his uh, his abilities, but uh, since he was uh, looking for another occupation to fill his time, maybe this was something that would suit him. And it did suit him because in his younger uh, years, he had already studied metallurgy and he had once even tried um, the alchemist's uh, task of uh, producing gold out of quicksilver. So he felt that this was a new thing uh, that he could take on, uh, but he's a, he was a very thorough man. Um, and so he studied this. Uh, seriously, he didn't do as he was uh, sort of told to do, but just relax. So he studied this very seriously, he got very seriously into this, um, informed himself about economics, which, which didn't take him long. Economics was something that he mastered sort of with his little finger. What always annoyed him was uh, money forgery, so producing degraded uh, coins and so on. 
Um, so he spent a, a great deal of uh, prosecuting uh, money forgers. Um, but another thing that also was always annoying was that uh, people arbitraged uh, silver and, and gold coin because whenever they could buy a silver on the cheap uh, in the coins, because the metal value was higher than the uh, denomination, they did so and the silver coins uh, disappeared. Often they were exported and there was a shortage of silver coins. So Newton set out to rectify this problem, and he established uh, an exchange rate between gold and silver, uh, which he thought was the appropriate one to keep the silver coins in circulation alongside the gold coins. He produced a rather complicated, I have to say, uh, memorandum, which he uh, presented Parliament. I read through it two times. I didn't quite follow it. I think the parliamentarians also didn't quite understand it. But how can you challenge such a genius as Isaac Newton and thinking that he, could, he got something wrong. In any event, they approved his suggestion in his memorandum and he established the new exchange rate on the mint. Well, it seems that traders were much more intelligent than the parliamentarians or even Isaac Newton, and they realized that he had actually chosen the wrong exchange rate. So what they did was they bought up all, all, all silver coins, melted them, and in the end, there were no silver coins around anymore. And this is how the UK came on uh, to the gold standard. From then on, they had only gold as the standard money because of Newton's misjudgment about the exchange rate. Perhaps the British gold standard wouldn't have become an uh, international standard if the UK had remained a little island forgotten by the rest of the world. But that was not the case. The UK developed into the foremost, the first, most important industrial nation power of the world then. And of course, they had a lot of trade relations. They opened up, very famous, the abolition of the corn laws in the mid-19th century. That created an environment in which trade, uh, market economics, industrial development was on everyone's mind. And if people wanted to trade with the British, they knew that they had to use gold as a means of exchange and unit of account. So why not think in terms of gold yourself? So against that background, we saw the evolution of the so-called gold standard, which lasted from 1870 around when sort of they all kind of formed the trade relationship about gold from 1870 to 1914. It was a very successful period. It was the period of the second industrial uh, revolution in, in the UK. It led to enormous trade integration, globalization. You could say the first round really of true globalization. The United States became ever more important and played an increasing role. And Britain was the dominating power at the time, of course, until World War I, um, when this wonderful gold standard that had created so intense relations, straight relations, financial relations, that people then thought another war was impossible because the world had grown uh, so much together. But World War I destroyed it. Yeah, it's, it's really a true statement, in particular today, that um, you, you can never think something is impossible, in particular uh -huh. not war. It's really an excellent story, the, the Isaac Newton story. Like It reminds me a little bit of the emperor's new clothes. Everybody looking at the calculation, it must be true because it comes from a genius and nobody yes. <laughs> even checking it. Yeah, and I mean, we, we know how the story unfolds, that after um, the First and the Second World War, the gold standard ended, and um, 
the system of Bretton Woods was established. We have discussed this extensively in this podcast as well because it was just the anniversary of the end mm. of Bretton Woods that had both actually the advantages of the gold standard, but as well flexible currency exchange. It was the period when the IMF was founded and... Um, this lasted until Nixon in the 70s, mm-hmm. he coupled the dollar from gold. And in between, of course, we had the experience of terrible inflation and hyperinflation in Germany and the rest of Europe. So if we look at this and then we move on a little bit, how the story continues after the end of Bretton Woods, mm-hmm. how, how would you describe this relationship between money and inflation and the different functions of money? In the Bretton Woods system, we had uh, tried to restore uh, the gold standard, um, but in a more intelligent way than the effort that was undertaken after World War One. There, the gold standard obviously failed and resulted in a lot of financial and eventually also geopolitical turmoil. So in the Bretton Woods system, one tried to um, return to a more flexible, but still in gold-anchored global monetary system. The problem was a problem that often occurred in history when you have a lead central bank responsible largely for the circulation of the money supply. The problem that Bretton Woods ran into was that uh, in the course of the 60s, towards the end especially, the guarantor of the system, namely the US, produced too many dollars. They produced too many dollars because under the Johnson administration, they wanted to launch a new social program, infrastructure program as well, that Johnson called the Great Society Program, which cost the government a lot. At the same time, after the assassination of Kennedy and Johnson's sudden uh, move into the White House, the Johnson administration also stepped up the war Um, in Vietnam. They poured many troops into this uh, country, which was uh, also very costly. So they had uh, two very expensive government programs running at the same time. And uh, Johnson uh, didn't want to raise taxes or cut government spending. That would have gone against the Great Society program. So being accompanied by a relatively permissive Federal Reserve, they engaged in monetary funding of this exercise. So this means that The Fed kept rates relatively low and the government issued bonds that banks and others then could buy, thereby creating more and more money. This made it very, very difficult for uh, the American administration to hold the price of gold in US dollar terms as fixed um, by uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1934, $35 per ounce, made it very, very difficult tricky to, to maintain this. And eventually, this relationship broke first on the market. The dollar devalued against gold in the open free market, but uh, it also broke among the central bank exchanges where you still could, for, for some time, following the devaluation of the dollar against gold in the market, you could exchange your dollars at a fixed exchange rate of $35 per ounce. And governments used this to exchange their accumulated excess dollars against gold, which depleted the uh, US gold reserves. And I guess the biggest insult to the US then eventually came um, from the French uh, president's first Charles de Gaulle, who um, hoarded uh, gold, exchanged dollars against gold. But then 
uh, also from his uh, successor, Georges Pompidou, uh, who sent the warship uh, to the US to collect uh, the gold that they had acquired from the US Treasury. That was too much for Richard Nixon, and they broke the link. At the time, uh, we were all in an environment in which we were kind of influenced by the great John Maynard Keynes, uh, who had uh, showed in his 1936 uh, seminal work the way to deal with uh, economic uh, instability. And uh, we were all thinking at the time in terms of Keynesian economics, where inflation was largely a real economy phenomenon. It was explained as a result, um, basically, of uh, the degree of capacity utilization in the economy. So if you had uh, full use of capacity, um, most uh, clearly demonstrated by a very low unemployment rate, so everyone was employed, then wages would go up and inflation would go up, and vice versa, when there was more um, unemployment, uh, lower capacity utilization. Uh, prices couldn't increase so much. This was the way we were thinking, and uh, we were not uh, li really looking at uh, the volume of outstanding money, which, by the way, in the past, people had always done. This goes back to a very old inflation theory, the quantity theory of inflation that uh, came up already in the 16th century as people were observing how uh, prices rose when there was more gold imported from South America. So that gave rise to the quantity theory of inflation, originally by a French uh, person, Jean Poudin, but then developed further by David Hume, John Locke uh, in the early 20th century by Irving Fisher. That was forgotten at the end 60s, uh, early 70s. We were focusing on labor markets and did not realize that uh, there was a lot of money hanging over the economy. A monetary overhang was created. It just wasn't on the radar screen. Then we had a couple of events that kind of um, picked this monetary bubble. It was it pricked this monetary bubble. In the early 1970s, uh, we had uh, a war, the Israeli-Arab war, Yom Kippur war, uh, which led to uh, an oil embargo by OPEC, the uh, oil cartel, which uh, drove oil prices uh, sky high. There was a big push on prices. The CPI went up, consumer prices price index went up with these, the input costs of energy increased so that uh, the prices of end products went up. And workers in Europe, represented by the trade unions, pressed for compensation of the loss of purchasing power, which they were given as the central bank didn't know what to do. In the course of the 70s, we had a high economic volatility recession in the mid-70s. Then in the second round of oil price increases towards the end-70s recession again. We had high inflation volatility with a surge of inflation in the first recession, 1974-75, which was at the time something that was not in the economic textbooks. Um, how can it be when you think in terms of a Keynesian model that um, inflation goes up and the economy down? That was a novel experience and it was called stagflation. So no growth, but inflation. So this was called stagnation, economic stagnation coupled with inflation. The term stagflation became very popular in the course of the 1970s. And so this evolution, this line of events also led to the rediscovery of money. It was not a new concept, 
but uh, a group of economists, mainly located in Chicago, uh, led by Milton Friedman, brought it again to attention. The school of monetarism was created, where people pointed out, look, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That's the famous sentence from Milton Friedman, which people learned in the course of the 70s the hard way, as money was plentiful, and even though growth was lackluster, um, inflation rose. Friedman also warned against the Keynesian demand management policies that were tested in the 60s, apparently with some success, but which failed entirely in the 70s when you had this lie-side shock from the oil side. Friedman warned against fine-tuning the economy because he said the lags of money on activity and inflation are long and variable. You can't do it. And a certain feeling uh, came up that uh, one has to focus again on money and one has to stop this huge money growth. It took until the early 80s, until uh, someone took serious action. And the person uh, taking the serious action was Paul Volcker. Towards the end of the 70s, things were really getting out of hand. Arthur Burns, his, his predecessor, didn't know what to do. Um, the U.S. had price controls um, with officials entering shops and looking whether the shopkeeper had increased prices, slapping fines on him. They really didn't know what to do. It was terrible. And in a sense, the, the new money system that was created with Nixon's delinking of the dollar from gold, this new money system was on the deathbed. This new money system was basically a way to create uh, money only through credit extension, no longer backed by any metal anchor, only credit extension. And the engine of money production were the commercial banks, which could extend credit and credit the account of the credit taker with the newly produced money. And the central banks were kind of the control center that were controlling the engine by either stimulating credit demand when they lowered their, their, their policy rate, which are important for the bank uh, banks because they have to engage with the central bank occasionally to uh, engineer in bank transfers. So with its policy rate, the central bank can influence the interbank rate. And uh, by lowering the policy rate, you lower the interbank rate, you stimulate credit demand, and the uh, motor of money production revs up. Uh, vice versa, if you raise policy rates, the interbank rates go up, the credit rates go up, and the motor slows down. So in the early 80s, Paul Folger decided enough is enough. Alan Greenspan, in his, in his memoir, uh, explains how Volker went uh, to an IMF meeting, annual meeting of the IMF in Belgrade in the early 80s. And all he heard was complaints that things are bad, that uh, the system is rotten, the system is on its deathbed, one doesn't know what to do about it. And, and, and Greenspan um, narrates how Volker said, enough is enough. He cut his stay short in Belgrade, flew back and decided to do something about it. So he decided to stop the money production and to call back some of the monetary overhang. To do this, he raised the federal funds rate up to 20%. This was brutal, absolutely brutal, because in turn, um, in the early 80s, the 10-year treasury rate, uh, bond yield, treasury bond yield for 10-year maturity, went up to 16%. There were some days where it's at 16%. Uh, if you look at the real rate, i.e. if you take the nominal rate, subtract the inflation rate from it, it went up to around 10%. This was a brutal, brutal full stop 
of this system that had become uncontrolled. And uh, Volker re-anchored it. Uh, he established the credibility of the central banks, of the independent central banks, to provide an anchor to the system. To do this, the focus was squarely directed on money, on money supply. I think Friedman made, made a mistake by being too religious about how money is defined. We came out of a out of an era in which the financial markets were heavily regulated and money could easily be defined as cash and, and side deposits because the banks were banned from taking longer term deposits and identifying them as money. So we came out with this idea that money is a clearly defined entity. When in the Reagan administration, the financial markets and banking sector was deregulated. The banks found many ingenious ways to create money substitutes. And the uh, definition of money became blurred. We moved from M1, which was cash and side deposits, to M2, where we included savings and time deposits. Uh, then we went to M3, which also included money market funds. And I think some banks even went, went further until it dawned to them that they had lost the control over the uh, definition uh, of money. And at the time, uh, the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada famously said, we didn't abandon M3, M3 abandoned us. So this was then in the course of the 80s, the, the monetarism kind of subsided because of this, uh, the difficulty to define money appropriately, but also, also, I think, because of its tremendous success. Volker had basically re-anchored the system. From then on, money growth was not a threat anymore. Uh, the central banks were independent, were credible. They kept uh, the money growth under control, even though they couldn't really target it anymore as precisely as, as Milton Friedman had intended. And in the 1990s, uh, we saw then the transfer from the monetary targeting, which was no longer really practicable because of the definitional problems, we moved on to, to inflation targeting. Inflation targeting was then a period in which things seemed to be going very well. We were living in an era where inflation was no longer a key problem. Money growth was no longer a key problem because the central banks had established discipline in the banking sector. But also inflation was held down by real economy phenomenons. We had globalization, the entry of more than 2 billion people into the global labor force as, as China and, and, and India dismantled their uh, protectionist uh, uh, system. We had uh, good technical progress, especially in the information and telecommunication sector, and all that created an environment in which inflation was no longer a problem. Central banks even had difficulties achieving inflation targets. They felt inflation was too low and uh, wanted to prop it up, not realizing that uh, the major part of the inflation drivers that kept inflation low were globalization and technical innovation. So they put rates at very low levels, didn't see any reaction in the inflation measures that they were watching, sort of consumer price and inflation measures. And with this very low interest rates, they created problems outside their area of interest or their focus area, which was then in the financial markets 
in the asset markets. In the course of this period, we had uh, subsequent asset price bubbles, which burst more or less spectacularly. Of course, the most spectacular burst was uh, the big financial crisis of 2007-2008. But the attitude there was, it's not our problem. We can't really look after financial markets and look after what's going on there. Uh, we have to let these things evolve. And when we have a problem, it's our job to go in and save the system. This was sort of the Greenspan, Alan Greenspan logic, which the financial markets dabbed somewhat with, with little respect the Greenspan put. And this led to um, a series of bubbles, bond market bubble of the early 90s, emerging market bubble of the late 90s, tech bubble of the 2000s, and financial, and, and eventually the subprime bubble of the of 2007, 2008. Um, somewhat uh, disingenuously, the central banks, after the burst of the financial bubble, continued with the same recipe. They poured liquidity into it, um, wanted to um, safeguard the real economy, of course, safeguard the financial system, the banking system. That was important. But later on, they wanted, with pouring ever more liquidity into the system, keeping rates ever lower, they wanted to get growth up with a view to get inflation to their target. In this process, in the course of the second decade of the century, so basically from 2010, to 2020. They fired up the asset markets. We had a tremendous bull market in equities. We had a tremendous bull market in the bond market. The central bank money they created did not get out to the non-banking sector. The banks absorbed it uh, as a means of transaction. They needed it in the bank transfers. Transfers flow smoothly. Uh, some people said, "Why? What do you care about money? Uh, you know, money is money doesn't matter anymore." When Jay Powell said, asked whether he was not at all concerned about money growth in early 2021, he said, "That doesn't matter anymore. We have to unlearn the importance of money. Money is no longer relevant." So, in a sense, we came into the 2020s in a way similar to how we entered the 70s. We did not watch anymore what's going on, on the money side. Uh, we thought inflation is a is a purely um, real phenomenon. We are watching labor markets. Uh, we are watching uh, the consumer price index, and we were hit by the pandemic. Now we saw another stage of the evolution of uh, of central bank policy. Whereas after the financial crisis, they were mostly dealing with the banks. So they were making sure that the banks did not go under by uh, replenishing them uh, with liquidity. And only people who were creditworthy could avail themselves of the low interest rates and take out credit and buy assets. So the general public, richer, wealthier general public bought real estate, companies bought stocks and so on. This time now around with the pandemic, we saw a different approach. We saw the merger of uh, fiscal and monetary policy. Now, the uh, central banks produce money for the governments who spend it, who spent it at the beginning of the pandemic primarily to compensate people for losses of income caused by lockdowns. So you saw again a big monetary overhang emerging, a monetary overhang that could not possibly be absorbed by higher production as there were supply bottlenecks uh, everywhere. So we saw uh, prices beginning to rise. Inflation has made a 1970s style comeback. And still, 
we are not really focusing on the elephant in the room, which is the excess money supply. Only gradually I see that it is dawning on people that this is important again. And now we have an additional factor coming in. I said before the 70s were characterized by oil price spikes because of war, Yom Kippur war. And now we have an additional element after the pandemic, the Ukrainian-Russian war which aggravates the situation in the sense that oil prices and uh, gas prices and a host of number of commodity prices are rising even further. And the central banks don't know what to do about it. Like in the 70s, they have tolerated this buildup of excess liquidity. And in a sense, how do you say it? They're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. So they're damned if they move against the monetary overhang by jacking up rates, forcing down credit demand, collecting the money again by having more credits repaid, which basically is, turns them into money destruction. There are new credits given out, which is uh, money growth if they do it. They're damped because then the economy goes into a tailspin. We get probably another banking crisis, maybe another financial crisis. So they're damped if they do, and they're damned if they don't. Because if they don't counter this problem of rising inflation, it becomes entrenched. There is no solution in sight uh, at present. Back then, when Volcker stopped the de-anchoring, when he re-anchored the monetary system, debt was low. U.S. general government debt was 30% of GDP. Now it is 130%, even higher, of GDP. You can't do it anymore. So what will happen out of this monetary system is presently, as we speak, a truly open question. Okay, thanks, Thomas. That, that's very interesting um, perspective. So you're basically saying we're back in the 70s with uh, most of the setup we, we're facing currently with the same dilemma as well, because as we learned from all the cases in history, you stated basically during this period of war, we face it one way or another now, and extreme situations like COVID, the government has to do something, right? So the government has to spend money it often does not have. But at the same time, of course, this uh, increased spending creates inflation, no matter how much it is tried to, to avoid that. But you're saying the fundamental um, difference to the 1970s is that there was very little debt in the 1970s, which is now on a global scale, very different. I mean, there is voices as well saying the debt is not the problem as long as the growth is always higher than the debt is. So looking at history, at all the, the different episodes you we talked about, do you see any inspiration of what could be one of the solutions for the situation we're facing? Well, when I look over the monetary history, um, as I did in my book, I came eventually to the conclusion that the history of money is a history of its crisis. The dilemma of money being scarce, but the demand for money being high has always been around and has always led to excess creation of money and the reigning back of the success creation. So in a sense, I think we may well see here another monetary crisis evolving, uh, leading eventually to a change in the monetary system. In the greater realm of history, this would be nothing extraordinary It has happened uh, time and time and time again. What I also sense from my studies of monetary history is that if you have a money crisis associated with or the result of a truly political crisis, then you get a monetary reform. So this is the classical case of a lost war. 
take Germany of the early 20s or Germany of the late 1940s. The empire lost World War I. They had funded it largely with printing paper money. The few years after the war, they're horrible. Uh, they printed more money. And in 1924, you had currency reform. The Reichsmark was replaced by the Rentenmark. So a pure paper money was uh, replaced by a land-backed currency, Rentenmark. Land because they didn't have gold. So Yalmar Schacht, an interesting guy, by the way, who has done enormously interesting things in the realm of money and finance in, in Germany, but has uh, these days been a bit forgotten. So Yalmar Schacht uh, introduced the Rentenmark backed by land claims the government had in order to signal to the people that money is again a scarce commodity. It worked tremendously. The Reichsmark went basically out of business and later on they relabeled the Rentenmarkt as Reichsmark. The second example was, of course, 1948, when in the currency reform, they replaced the Reichsmark with the Deutsche Mark. So you have that if you have money crisis associated with political changes. When that is not the case, what uh, governments have often have done to try to find uh, solid ground again by taxing the creditors and subsidizing the borrowers, mostly themselves. This is the means of financial repression, um, which, which uh, the, the Americans engaged after World War II, Brits as well, others as well. What you do then is that you manipulate interest rates to a very low level below the rate of growth. And with that, you gradually wind down your debt. It's basically a wealth transfer from the creditor to the debtor. It is not as abrupt as a currency reform, but it basically also devalues the money, but in a more gradual fashion. When I look at the present situation, it seems to me that we'll probably see this second method again applied, i.e. financial repression which means that uh, people will try to avoid, of course, being taxed and get out of nominal assets. So I could well see that uh, people eventually, and they have comprehended the whole situation, uh, they will shy uh, savings instruments by the, of the banks. They will avoid investments in nominal bonds. The government usually retorts to that by forcing some investors to buy these instruments uh, through regulation. We see this that uh, pension funds, uh, all sorts of pension instruments are required to do so, buy these government bonds as secure assets, insurance companies, and so on and so forth. There are numbers of regulation that actually create forced buyers of these bonds, but it may not be enough. I mean, it's not enough. Uh, what you see then is a gradual exit by the general public um, of money. And I have in my book talked about uh, the uh, experience of Italy, which had actually a bad post-Bretton Woods era. Uh, in Bretton Woods, the Banca d'Italia was always committed to having to maintain the exchange rate of the lira against the dollar and only exceptional circumstances could it be changed. So they could tell off the politicians. They could say, look, I have to take care of the exchange rate. Otherwise, you politicians, you have to go to Washington, IMF, and ask for a devaluation of the lira. That's not something you want to do. It's your prestige is going to suffer. So let, let me alone. When the lira began uh, to float uh, freely in the FX markets, when the Bretton Woods system had crumbled, uh, the politicians forced the Banca d'Italia basically to act as a lender of last resort to governments. They had to take up any bond the government could not sell for itself a reasonable price. In other words, the Banca d'Italia kept interest rates lower than they would have been if we would have had 
free market. The result was excessive money creation, high inflation, and a degradation of the currency. Between 1971 and the lira entry into the euro average inflation in Italy was 9.5%. The lira depreciated by 82% against the DMARC, which was managed in a more stricter way. So I could see that uh, going forward, we shall see uh, similar uh, developments again. And quite frankly, I'm most worried about the euro following the path of the lira, because uh, in Europe, we have as an aggravating factor what the economists called the uh, tragedy of the commons. The commons is the, 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 the meadows right, in, in, in a village where the peasants uh, drive their cattle to graze. Uh, but since no one has really an ownership of the commons, it leads to overgrazing and therefore the debasement of the commons. And in a sense, the euro, I think, is suffering from the tragedy of the commons because uh, we only have a monetary union, cash union, because only uh, euro cash has the same credit quality. Bank accounts have different credit quality, depending on the shape of the banks that create it, or also the shape, financial shape of the governments that eventually can backstop the banks. But this monetary or cash union has, has not a single guardian. There are 19 governments, and basically every government can put its hand into the jar pot of the ECB, as they have done tremendously during the pandemic. The ECB has bought a hell of a lot of government bonds in 2020. They funded almost the entire new issues, 95%, I calculate, of new issuings, issues of uh, Eurozone government. So the entire budget deficits, basically, of the Eurozone were funded by ECB money creation. And uh, looking at the present situation with war in, in, in Ukraine and uh, big needs of governments to step up defense, I could imagine that this process simply goes on. And this creates then a currency that gradually falls out of fashion. I call it the liraization of the euro. It gradually falls out of fashion. People will economize on its use. First goes the use as a means to store value, that's basically already gone. People look for other stores of value. The second, still quite some time away, this is then the end of the use or the downgrading of the use as a means of transaction and unit of account that you usually get in later stages of creeping monetary crisis when people look for alternative means of exchange and store value. I think the Latin American say something about it. It happens over and over again. And I could imagine that over time, um, residents of the euro area would look to alternatives. Not sure whether this will lead to the dollarization that you have seen in Latin America and other countries uh, where such a illness has, has developed. Perhaps we will look more towards cryptocurrencies, maybe private cryptocurrencies. This segment is uh, in great uh, turmoil right now. There's a lot of development going on. And it could well be that uh, private cryptos eventually simply outcompete the euro because it's no longer considered as a good money. That is actually a, a very in intriguing um, thought because um, partially I was thinking of what you call the, the financial repression as well, but more from... Really, the, the basic perspective of, of a private person, I was astonished how strongly I am discouraged by my bank to keep any money in euros in a bank. But at the same time, looking for alternatives that cannot really be found so much. If this um, movement um, towards um, making it so unattractive to store your value in, in euros continues, 
there is really no way around um, finding an alternative. And what else could it be than crypto? But not only that, if you look at property prices, and I, I think the trend really goes towards this. And um, for me as well, it is a bit hard to understand how this can be continuously so encouraged by, by government as well. Because of these new terms and rules, um, they are um, basically in order to finance all the spending, but it doesn't seem to go all too well. So reading in your book, you're, you're mentioning that scandalous idea you have to save the euro and basically the, the general um, problems the monetary system has on, on a global level. And um, if I understand correctly, what you suggest is um, currency competition. So to have... Um, different currencies for different functions of money. And then you argue that the competition regulates um, the functioning of these different monies by itself, because the best option will always be the most successful one. Do you want to explain a little bit more how you imagine this solution? Let's start with the challenge that we have. Clearly, digitization is something that has also affected the money sector. What we see with the cryptos is a technical innovation that you can compare with introduction of paper money. So there's a technical challenge. Uh, secondly, we have uh, excessive uh, debt on government uh, accounts. Thirdly, we have a uh, central bank uh, here in Europe, it's slightly different, but here in Europe, that has become under fiscal dominance. In other words, uh, they have to produce money to fund the government needs. So they are really, really, really under pressure. If they don't do anything, I would think they will go out of business eventually. So what can you do? First of all, you have really to upgrade your technology. Banks that in the past ignored paper money went out of business because people didn't want to carry around big iron money or couple coins. So you have to do this. You have to take on the, the technological challenge. You have to cut government debt in order to be able to have a, a restart and you have to get down inflation. These are the challenges. So I thought, why not combining a proposal that was made in 1933 to the Roosevelt administration in the midst of the depression, after economists had assessed that the fractional reserve banking had gotten out of hands, had created a stock market bubble that had crashed spectacularly in 1929 and uh, had led to several years already by 1933 of, of depression. Then these economists uh, around Irving Fisher, Harry Simons, others, prominent economists at the time, proposed uh, to the Roosevelt administration a change of the monetary system. Uh, Irving Fisher has written a book later on about it, which he entitled 100% money. So what does it mean? Basically, they suggested that uh, the Fed freeze the government bonds on its account and link the money issued to that asset. So in a sense, what you do is, instead of creating money on the basis of rotating credit stock, where credit is given out, thereby money created, and money is destroyed when the credit is repaid, and you have to create new money by new credit extension. And all this process is very hard to control and to keep on an even keel because banks are the producers. The central bank is the controller, but they never get the interest rate with which they influence the interbank rate and the credit rate absolutely right and thereby create in the system of a rotating credit stock as the asset that backs money, they create continuous boom-bust cycles. So therefore, the idea of the Chicago plan is fix the credit stock, take only government credit on the asset side, 
is your money and increase this credit stock gradually first step in the euro area you could this way immediately create a safe deposit you know all the debate about edis european deposit insurance would would basically be solved with a stroke of a pen because every bank side deposit would be linked 100% to reserves the bank has central bank reserves and the central bank reserves would be backed 100% by claims on the government so you would have a credit quality of the a bank account equal to cash to bank notes the ecb issue so that would be the first step second step technological innovation they will have to digitize the euro people will use in the future digital money they're presently toying with ideas that seem to be a little bit a topping up of the existing system by a digital euro that you can use personally up to 3000 euro whatever no go the full way introduce a digital uh, euro where on your liability side of the central bank you have uh, your uh, banknotes and you have the digital euro and on the asset side you have government bonds like the chicago people suggested and you grow your government bonds on a steady path increase therefore your money supply so to speak your liability also at a steady path and force the governments then to borrow in the market rather from the central bank this is now the third step how can you assure that the system works because uh, when you suggest a thing like that the immediate response is but the governments will find ways to twist the arms of the central banks again they will find ways into the safe of the central bank and rob the money from there so therefore the only way to ensure discipline is to allow this digital euro to stand in competition with other currencies and we will see this because we already have a lot of cryptocurrencies around bitcoin of course the most famous example but there are others and this is an evolving process so you could have um, a digital euro compete with other digital currencies don't suppress them let them compete with the digital euro so that each issuer produces money to the benefit of the user not to the benefit of the issuer in the past the issuer has benefited when it was a private one by creating synergy through excessive money issuance fractional reserve banking today in the fiat money credit money systems central banks also get part of the seniorage because they charge the credit taker more than they pay the depositor so create here a new system where the central bank basically only lets this money stock then grow at a predetermined rate milton friedman called it the k percent rate so that it retains its purchasing power and stands in competition basically with with the others that also want to preserve their purchasing power so that they can keep their their users on board now we talked about the creation of new money along the line of the um, economic uh, development so when the economy grows you can even take out the additional money stock and pay it as a money dividend to the money users rather than putting into the government account so that the government again can use new money to fund its expenses no put in a rule that says that you can only use the new money stock to pay it out to your customers you have happy customers if you do this this is a kind of uh, airline miles program for money users you can even embed it in a smart contract in this money and say this money is only valid if it is created according to these rules it's kind of a, a digital watermark 
if it's not created according to this rule, it's invalid. And any country that sort of comes up with a digital euro that is not following these rules is basically issuing counterfeit money. What do banks do in this system? The banks would do what the textbooks say they do. They would collect money, in this case, digital euros, and lend them on to people who want to borrow. So in a sense, the banks would act like funds, like bond funds, which collect money from their customers and then lend it on by buying bonds. The difference between a bond fund and a bank would then be that the bank has a first loss insurance in terms of its equity cushion. So let's say the bank keeps 10% of its balance sheet as equity ratio. That is the cushion that protects the depositor from losses the bank incurs through lending. You can have different banks. One has 10%, the other has 20%. So 20% is less risky. So they can tell their customers, look, you're more safe. Therefore, I give you a lower interest rates. The ones that have a lower equity ratio can say, look, we are lending more in a more risky way, but you get also higher return. So it would simplify the system a lot. It would put it into competition and it would take the fiscal dominance out of the equation. And with that, I think you could reestablish a sound currency in Europe. I've written this in the book, not because I believe anyone will follow this proposal. I've only put it in so that people can't say we didn't see it coming and there was no solution. That was a line you could hear often from politicians in the wake of the financial crisis. The economists didn't see it coming. They didn't have a solution. It just happened. I think it is important to establish such counter-proposals to put them into the discussion so that when eventually we, we end up in the soup, politicians can't say nobody saw it coming. And there was no alternative to being now in a big crisis. There is an alternative. Although I have to say, I'm not at all confident that the politicians will have the courage to take preemptive steps. In my view, what I have experienced is politicians always react. You have to see first the crisis, then you can see a political reaction to it. Often it is too late. In your book, you call your suggestion. Um, in German, scandalism has this double meaning of, um, at the same time, it means scandalous, but it means as well it's unheard of. It's tricky, you know, because um, I very much sympathize with what you suggest of basically simplifying the, the system we have now, but as well opening a real global alternative up, which we do not really have at the moment. And as well, the baseline of your suggestion is to take a bit of the state out of the system again, so to limit the power of the state or to limit the strong hand the state has over money at the moment, which has grown stronger. So it won't be very easy for politicians to limit that themselves. So it, it will be interesting to see if there will be strong um, force uh, pushing from one side to, to have a real alternative on the table before there is a crisis we need to react to, right? Changes can come only when the public consciousness changes. Uh, if people get very uneasy about the existing money, if they look for alternatives, then the politicians can react. Then such Uh, proposals get a serious he hearing. So you could say, why make such proposals now if they don't get a serious hearing? Well, the answer is you need to think ahead of the crisis, before a crisis, so that, have, that you have a thought out plan what to do when the time is ripe to make the decision. I only hope that it won't take too long for politicians to realize what's going on 
In the case of the Ukraine war, you could say that the German government probably took a decision five minutes past noon. Eventually they did it, but it took them an enormous amount of time to do the right thing, supporting the Ukraine. Given that reaction function that we have seen there, one can only hope that they will be a little bit more alert to the problems that, in my view, that will come up on the currency side in due course. I can understand your sentiment um, about the velocity of reactions. But so my conclusion, um, one of the conclusions from, from our talk is that I'm going to look again into the actually the biography or the history of Yalma Schacht. Because um, when you mentioned this example, I, I think I remember that as well. They invented this um, imaginary military company. They gave out shares or something <laughs> yes. to finance. So there's a lot of interesting stories, actually, that are relatively unheard of. Um, so if Anybody of our listeners has a good reading suggestion, I'm very welcome to, to send it my way. So what's next for you, Thomas? Where are you headed with your research? Oh, presently, I think I, I pause a little bit in writing books because this is my second book during the pandemic. And I'm looking forward that uh, the home office is going to go a little bit into the background. Uh, but I will continue to look at the evolution of our money system. It seems to me that uh, we're heading into a very tricky period where stagflation is making a comeback and many of the things that we have taken for granted are changing. So there's a lot to do in analysis and in uh, seeing what, what, what this changing world poses in new challenges. I couldn't agree more. Like everybody, we're looking forward to um, a year of bit less um, home office and a bit more um, other activity. And um, we will hopefully uh, see you on the 1st of July at our conference in, in Sofia in Bulgaria, where we will talk about um, monetary unions in history. And well, thank you very much for having this conversation with me. Thank you, Carmen. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international, non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.